0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today called God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, I Am Who I Am. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, as we join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: It was A.W. Tozer who, in his book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy, Well, in my mind, summed up the matter very well. He said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever arisen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And then he goes on to say, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given moment may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is not only true of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. End quote. We're slowly moving in our study in the book of Exodus to the key of the entire book, which is the nature of the God that called Moses and Israel and the God the Egyptians encountered. In many ways, this book is a study of God. But of course, we don't study God by imagining what he might be like. That's called idolatry. We study God by first being encountered by God. God reveals himself first. Then we reflect on what we've learned from God's self-disclosure. And as A.W. Tozer rightly pointed out, the most significant thing that can be said about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Up to now in our study of Exodus, we began with the history of Israel and her descent into slavery. We saw that matters became so extreme that there's genocide being practiced against all Hebrew males. Moses, by the providence of God, is rescued from certain death and becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But something is stirring in Moses' heart. He's not content to be the man of royalty and privilege. As Hebrews 11 tells us, he preferred to be identified with the enslaved people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He becomes an exile at the age of 40s, hunted as a killer by Egyptian authorities. He's rejected by the Hebrews. But he marries into an important Midianite family, and for the next 40 years, he accepts his destiny as a shepherd. Until that one day when God chooses to reveal himself to Moses, the revelation of God happening at the burning bush. And there at the burning bush, God declares that he's seen the affliction of his people and he's called Moses to go to Pharaoh and bring Israel out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And instead of jumping for joy and saying, I knew I had a grand purpose for my life and I'm even more joyous because I know I'm setting my people free, Moses is filled with doubts. Who am i he asks see moses first question is about himself and his fitness for the task now last time we did see this is a part of moses humility but we also see that moses thinks he simply doesn't have the capacity to perform the task god reassures him i'm going to be with you he says but moses hasn't settled the matter you know of the lack of his abilities as well as his qualifications and furthermore, as we'll see today, he's concerned that his lack of qualifications for the job will be easily recognized by the Israelites. And so Moses takes this doubt about himself one step further. Here I'm reading Exodus 3:13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. See, reading this passage with contemporary eyes, that is, you know, from the perspective of someone living, you know, in the Western world, you know, in the modern era, I mean, this passage doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, why is it so important that Moses, when he goes to the enslaved people of Israel, I mean, why is it so important that he's able to answer the question, what's the name of God? But rather than answering this from our vantage point, let's try to answer it from the perspective of someone living in the ancient world. See, every single culture in that surrounding area, that is in Egypt, all the way into the Middle East and on, every culture was polytheistic. They were also naturalistic, and furthermore, they were syncretistic. Let me unpack that. To be polytheistic means that one believes in a multitude of gods and goddesses. So let's see this from the perspective of Egypt. Since Israel was living in Egypt, no doubt they had become quite familiar with the Egyptian religion, Amun-Ra that's the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon. Mut, that's the mother goddess of all. Osiris is the god of the afterlife. Ra was the sun god. Horus is the god of vengeance. Happy is the god of the Nile. But not only are there a multitude of gods and goddesses, many of those gods were associated with nature. And that's what I meant when I said that they were a naturalistic polytheism in that the forces of nature were deified. Again, let's lose Ra as an example. You know, it's not just that the sun is in the sky, it's that the sun itself is divine and a god. So please remember that when we get to the plagues, that the one true god sends on the Egyptians. We're going to return to that. But I also said that the Egyptians and the cultures around them were syncretistic. So if there were a new religion among them or a new religious philosophy, the naturalistic polytheism of Egypt would simply incorporate that new system into their already existing system. So think of it this way. You know, in the Western world, where it was influenced by Christianity, we have, in the past, tended to think in terms of a proposition as well as its opposite. That is, something can't be true while at the same time, the opposite is also true. And so put that plainly, you can't have the sky being blue and the sky being green at the same time. It's one or the other. And modern science, which rises out of the Judeo-Christian worldview, functions in that manner. We put forward a thesis, and then we have a means of testing that to see if the premises will stand or if they fall through contrary evidence. But syncretism is different. When something contrary is put forward, that contrary thing, even you know that contrary God, is simply assimilated into the whole so that everything becomes true. Now, we need to add to this one important feature in ancient cultures, to know the name of someone is also to know something essential about that person. Now add those two ideas together, a syncretistic naturalistic polytheism that seeks to synthesize everything into its system and the idea that knowing the name of someone or some God is going to tell you about the essence of that God. So here's the question we might ask. Weren't the Israelites different from all the other nations on earth? Well, they were supposed to be, to be sure. But as we continue to read through Exodus, we're going to learn how very Egyptian the Israelites had become in their thinking. So the prophet Ezekiel, he lived 900 years after these events, but he still retained an accurate history of what life was like for Israel in Egypt. And here I'm reading Ezekiel 20, verses 6 to 8. He said, "'On the day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God.' but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now bear that in mind. So Moses, who knew both the religion of Egypt very well and would also lead the spiritual life of Israel would have known that Israel would ask a very Egyptian question when he showed up. Name the God who sent you to us. He would have said, I come to you, having been sent by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they would say, that's not enough. What is his name? And Moses said, what will I say? Now, it might be that the Israelites were quite aware of all the numbers of the names of their God. The book of Genesis records the name El Elyon, God Most High, or Pahad Yitzhak, Fear of Isaac. El Shaddai, God the Almighty. El Roy, the God who sees me. El Bethel, the God of Bethel. But whatever name that the Israelites might have heard, it might also just as easily have been the case that they needed some assurance that the name that they would get from Moses, the name of their God, would be seen as a God that might be as imposing as Amon-Ra or Horus, the God of war us they would ask what's the name of the god who sent you and then we'll find out how powerful he actually
0: is it's that time of year again for the release of our annual back to the bible canada 2023 scripture calendar this year's theme is freedom in christ to commemorate the gift of liberty that god has graced us with through jesus each month, you'll find stunning visuals, a Bible verse reflecting on freedom, and encouragement from Dr. John Newfeld to live freely. It also contains a guide to help you read through the Bible in its entirety in one year. It's our hope that this resource will serve as a tool to help you engage with God's Word daily, as well as to encourage you to live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. The Freedom in Christ calendar is available free for the month of October. But hurry, supplies are limited. So to request your copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: We remember that A.W. Tozer said that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you or I. If the culture in which you live has shaped your view of God, that indicates your spiritual future. I mean, I recently heard of a church that claimed that after some time in prayer, that the Holy Spirit, none other than the Holy Spirit had showed them that they were to be an LGBTQ plus affirming church. So let's understand what they were saying. They said, we sensed the Holy Spirit saying that the clear teaching of the Bible was not to be trusted. We should trust in the direction of sexual identity now affirmed by our secular culture. Without knowing it, they were not so very different than ancient Israel that couldn't think about God apart from the paradigms of Egyptian culture. And I mention this because when we ask, what is the name of God? We're actually asking, what is his true nature? And if we were to conclude that his true nature is exactly like the most cherished values in our culture, the one in which we live, well, rest assured that you're not worshiping the true God. You're worshiping your culture. Your culture is your God. Let's get back to Moses. He's uncertain that he is the right choice to go. Indeed, he's so uncertain that he thinks, I won't even be able to answer the very first question that would establish my credibility. God, what am I going to answer if they ask me, what is your name? Look at verse 14 again. God said to Moses, I am who I am. There are only three words in the Hebrew. They appear as five words in the English. It's haya, aser, haya. You know, I I would be negligent as a Bible teacher here if I didn't point out that the translation of those words has been much debated in the contemporary age. We can, I think, rightfully translate them as our translation, the ESV, and almost every other translation translates them. Very simply, I am who I am. But others suggest the word should be, I will be who I will be. And still others say, it should be translated, I create what I create. And there are other possibilities as well. But without going into all the reasons for it, I'm going to simply assume that our translation is a very good translation. Rightly translated, God says, I am who I am. What does that mean? Well, we might think God's answering in such a way so that he refused to dignify Moses' question with an answer. That is to say, I mean, God might be saying, I mean, who are you to even ask such a question? Now, if that's what God is saying, that would probably be a sufficient response. But God might, in this strange response, be already indicating what his name is. That has something to do with his true being. We might simply understand this to be saying, I am the God who exists. Unlike the multitude of polytheistic gods that you will find in Egypt, I, on the other hand, am the true living God. And so from this perspective, let's see if we can take three important meanings from this response, I am who I am. First, God is saying that he exists, and not only that he exists, but that his existence is a necessary reality. See, our existence as people, it's not necessary. That is, there's nothing that indicates that it would be impossible for there to be reality without human beings. I mean, we can easily imagine that, you know, all of nature could exist without humans, but that's not so with God. It's not possible that he would not exist. He is the God who is, whose existence depends on nothing else, and whose non-existence is not a possibility. See, we might play a game. Imagine a world without sunlight. Imagine a world without life. Imagine a universe in which our solar system didn't exist. I mean, all of those things are possible, but we can't imagine a reality without God for he is the one essential being, I am. Second, God is saying that everything that exists is dependent on him for its existence. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. I mean, sometimes philosophers will speak about contingent and non-contingent beings. A contingent being is a being whose existence is contingent on something outside of themselves. An easy example is to say, you know, to simply consider the reality of our own lives. We exist, but we cannot say I am. That is, my existence is contingent on many factors. My parents, the environment in which I live, my ongoing health, and ultimately it's contingent on the God who made me. God is non-contingent. That is his existence doesn't depend on anything for he is life in and of itself. And then third, when God says, I am who I am, he's not saying I'm becoming, he says, I am. Theologians call this the immutability of God. That is to say, God of necessity never changes. Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob are not consumed. That is in the context of Malachi. Were it not for the fact that when God made promises, he would keep them, if that were not true, God would have destroyed Israel. But God doesn't break his promises because he is changeless. Listen, if God changed, he could change in one of two ways. He could either change for the better or he could change for the worse. Now, if God changed for the worse, that would mean he'd be untrustworthy and unpredictable, like a very bad dictator. But if he changed for the better, then it would mean that what God is today is not the very best. We're yet waiting for the best version of God, you see? But God is not like the Egyptian deities. He's not the God who will be what he will be. He's the God who is what he is. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And so it would not matter if God made a promise to Israel that they would take the promised land three minutes ago or 430 years ago, God who speaks is the God who is. He's changeless. And for our purposes today, when someone suggests that God has changed his mind, you know, about sexuality, or about the first commandment, that we are to have no other gods but him, or about his intention of making humankind as male and female, when we reject what God has said in history, we betray that we don't worship the God who is We rather worship the gods of our culture. And what comes into your mind when you think about God, that is the most important thing that can be said about you. Now then, it would be incomplete if we read this, and we didn't take this to the New Testament, to John chapter 8. Now then we find Jesus in a debate with the Pharisees. And Jesus has been saying that if they abide in his truth, they are truly his disciples, and they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And after some debate, Jesus then says, abraham the man you claim to be your father he rejoiced at the thought that he would see my day he saw my day and he rejoiced and the religious teachers are outraged they say look you're not yet 50 years old and you claim that you've seen abraham just who do you think you are they ask and then jesus answers john 8 58 truly truly i say to you before abraham was i am that is the very words that moses heard were the words that Jesus said describe him. In short, Jesus is claiming that all that is true of the Father is also true of him. Even as the Father exists of necessity, so does Jesus. Even as the Father's existence is non-contingent, so is Jesus. Even as the Father never changes, so Jesus also is the same yesterday, today, and forever, never changing. Let's get back to Moses. He's having an amazing conversation with God. God's not finished. Let's continue to reread to the end of the passage. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now notice in verse 15, the words, the Lord are used the God of your fathers. And if you notice in your Bible, the word Lord, all capitalized letters. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. So Hayah means I am. And Yahweh, which sounds very similar in the Hebrew, that's the covenant name for God. It sounds like I am. So to call him Yahweh is to say that he is the great I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who entered into covenant with them, the God who promised them the promised land and through them to bless the whole earth. This is Yahweh, the I am. Notice then the addition in the last part of verse 15. This is the name forever. It Clearly indicates that this is not the first time that God has introduced himself by that name. We can go all the way back to Genesis 4:26. There we read, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, way at the beginning of the creation, people began to call on the name of the Lord, all capitalized, on the name of Yahweh. And yeah, since the letters are capitalized, it's always from the Hebrew word Yahweh. So Seth called him Yahweh. So did Noah. So did Abraham. You know, it says, and there Abraham built an altar to Yahweh and called on the name of Yahweh. See, the God who eternally exists and who makes a promise never changes, and his name has been known throughout the generations. It turns out that in our spiritual journey, we have only two choices. We can worship the gods who constantly change, or we can fall on our knees before the God who never changes, the God who is known as Yahweh, the eternal I am.
0: Thanks for your message, John. You know, I find it interesting about our culture that we tend to shape God around our need or our circumstance. What is the risk in doing that?
1: Well, the risk is that <laughs> the risk is that we become idolaters. I mean, if all that God is, is the product of your imagination or your experiences, then God is just a projection of yourself and you're worshiping yourself. Either we worship the God who is revealed in the text of Scripture, that is, in the way in which he has revealed himself to us, or we're bowing at the wrong altar. It's just that profound. And if we're bowing at the wrong altar,
0: time to repent. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we celebrate Thanksgiving. We rejoice to see what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada. We also offer thanks for the host of faithful supporters who pray, give, and encourage this Bible teaching ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is dependent upon God's supply through you. He is faithful, and His people reflect His faithfulness. In this month of Thanksgiving, we invite your financial support. Your consistent generosity, first-time donation, or becoming a monthly partner enables this ministry to consistently and faithfully proclaim God's Word across Canada. Thank you for the important role you play in ministry. May your heart and home be filled with joy this Thanksgiving. May your soul know the delight of God's release from sin, guilt, and burden. For more information, to receive your Freedom in Christ Scripture calendar, or to offer a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.